นโมทัสสะกวาโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดมังสังขังนมัสสะสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขารสังขาร
then those are very limited blessings that, hmm, that the Buddha wanted us to take these teachings, these examples inwardly and to realize the true source of blessings. As many of you will be familiar with the discourse on the greatest blessings, the Mahamangala Sutta, where the Buddha elaborates on how to accumulate blessings and how to build up a storehouse of goodness. But then at the end of that discourse is this line, Arya Sachana Dasanang, Hetang Mangalamutamang, that insight into the Four Noble Truths, this is the greatest blessing. And in other words, that these external sources of inspiration and encouragement and, and the happiness and gladness and good fortune that, that we can feel in, in response uh, are all there for the purpose of supporting an inner journey the journey to the source of real blessings, which is that heart, that jittang, as it goes on to say, that jittang yasang nakampati, that heart, that consciousness, that awareness is unshakable. We are a jang kiamang, perfectly pure, perfectly secure. Yeah, that's, that's the point. That's the point of all these external blessings. That's the point of all this accumulation of goodness is so as to take beings to the realization of that which is inherently secure and pure, the source of all real blessings. And, and when we contemplate the good fortune of our life and whatever aspect, we also bring to mind that no amount of external good fortune or goodness or source of gladness is going to liberate us. What the Buddha wanted us to realize was that liberation only comes through the realization of that which is inherently pure and secure. That is the consciousness that is completely free from all distortions. The awareness which is perceived directly free from all greed, hatred and delusion. All compulsive tendencies to become lost in attachments. And this is not always immediately obvious because for all of us, and we're familiar with the obstructions of greed, hatred and delusion. We're familiar with the obstructions that arise out of our habitual tendencies to take sides, to pick and choose, to get caught up in preferences, to follow our conditioned attachments. And we're so habitually acquainted with tendencies of following our preferences that that even feels normal and and so we can forget or for a lot of people they're not even aware they've never even been taught that there is this also this possibility of turning around and looking inwards for blessings looking inwards at awareness itself the heart itself, consciousness itself, yeah. not just 
following the activity and refining down our access to external blessings but working on the quality of awareness, of consciousness, of knowingness. Our attention is very easily drawn to the external. So it's obvious, you know, like the good fortune and the gladness and uh, potential happiness that comes from being healthy. You can you know, look at the amount of money that gets spent on health products and, and going to the gym and working out. You know, feeling healthy can feel really good. But it's, nobody's ever felt healthy all their life, and yeah, eventually you, you're unhealthy, and the evidence of that is you die, and that's that doesn't probably doesn't feel so good. Certainly for the vast majority of people, it feels very difficult and very unpleasant. And so cultivating health and seeking security in that area is flawed. Uh, or seeking security, for instance, physical security, uh, material uh, wealth, and that certainly has an attraction to it. And, you know, but you can spend a big part of your life working hard, getting properly educated, and building a business, and then you turn around and you see some twenty-year-old YouTuber making mega bucks, <laughs> doing pretty much nothing. Certainly has its place to secure ourselves physically and, and, and with health or education. Mm. But none of these things are really inherently secure or guaranteed to give us ongoing sense of contentment. We can lose them all. Yeah. doesn't mean to say they're not relevant. Of course they're relevant in health and education and physical security, job security. There are certainly plenty, plenty of people around today misusing their power and influence to, to or virtually enslave people to you know, pointless jobs and taking advantage of people and addressing these injustices and examples of unfairness is, is important. But we can address all of these things and still inwardly be very discontented, feel deeply obstructed. Saving the planet. There's plenty of evidence around these days. Unless you're really, really obstructed, it's pretty irrefutable really to realise that human beings have created some serious problems pumping all this plastic into the ocean and all these toxins into the air and chopping down a lot of the organisms that maintain balance. It's, there's, there's plenty of evidence there, and it does definitely attract considered, careful attention. However, if you make this the primary object, this is the most important thing in life, to save the planet. Well, we might save the planet, but still be fundamentally unhappy. At least this is the teaching that the Buddha wants us to consider, that 
you know, no amount of external good fortune is going to liberate us. That the real source of sustainable happiness, or as the Buddha put it, self-existent happiness, you know, the heart that is completely free from distortions of greed, hatred and delusion is already perfectly contented. And so committing ourselves to the realization of this quality of consciousness, this heart, this awareness, is a worthy venture. Even if we surround ourselves with wonderful spiritual companions and a happy community, company of committed Dhamma practitioners, and well, look what happened in Korea where Buddhism was... It wasn't exactly illegal, but monks and nuns were not allowed to go into the cities for 500 years. Buddhism was flourishing in Korea for, for many, many years. And, and then along came another power structure, another religious authority, and pushed Buddhists out. And they weren't allowed again in the city for 500 years. And only in the last century was that turned around. And, even spiritual companions is not a source of security or guaranteed to liberate us. So referring back again to the Mahamangala Sutta, the discourse on greatest blessings that the Buddha gave, and seeing how this encouragement to cultivate Goodness on all levels, including practical skills and ability and taking responsibility for our life and developing gratitude and respect and patience and these other virtues. All oriented towards the Arya Satchana Dasanang, the insight and dasanang, insight into unobstructed awareness. That's the, that's the goal, that's, that's the emphasis. And so long as we're still looking outside, so long as we perceive our experience of dissatisfaction, of discontentment, as something that we've got to get away from, we have this idea of contentment, that even if it's inspired by spiritual exercises, not to mention physical exercises or accumulation of wealth or accumulation of information or uh, accumulation of various skills. However refined our aspirations of accumulation might be, if it's motivated by the sense, by the perception, that discontentment is because we're lacking something, and then we follow that impulse, we follow that desire to become contented. I will be contented when I can get what I need, that which I'm lacking. So we have this desire for contentment, to get away from discontentment. And so long as we're believing in that, then we're always discontented. We don't see that we're the authors of our discontentment. It's like that example Ajanamaro talks about sometimes when he was very young, he he used to have this exercise where he'd try and escape from his shadow and he'd run and run and run and try running faster. He wanted to escape from his shadow. And of course, eventually he realized he, he couldn't escape from his shadow. And 
Oh, likewise, so long as we're running from dissatisfaction towards this idea of satisfaction, running from discontentment to this idea of contentment, trying to run away from something that we're in fact creating. Not very wise. And, but if it's never pointed out to us, then we don't see. We're perpetually creating the conditions for discontentment and thinking that the causes are outside. We will feel contented when we get what we want. And it's not even we, it's usually me. When, when I get what I want, I will be contented when I get what I want. And so I keep doing this that I've been doing for so long, trying to get what's going to make me whole. Well, the Buddha's encouragement is to turn the light of attention around and look inwards. Stop running and look at that very impulse to get away from discontentment. This is the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths. This is what the Buddha did. This is what the Buddha realized. That not understanding the nature of desire, not seeing that we're doing the discontentment, means that we're always, in fact, running away from the real source of blessings. We're creating obstructions to the real source of blessings which is the undefiled, undistorted heart itself, awareness itself, when it's not disfigured by addiction to me and my way. But this takes some serious inquiry, some serious investigation before we get to see for ourselves. And it is seeing for ourselves that makes a difference it's only when we realize we have this ability not just to think about this stuff but to do what we need to do to quieten down the noise of compulsive thinking and emoting and doing to disengage not as a judgment of the world not as a judgment of external activity not as a rejection of anything, but by way of investigation, by way of experiment. What happens if we stop running? What happens if we stop following desire and we turn the light of attention around and look at this very experience of I want? What does it feel like? Is it permanent? Is it ultimate? And if we use the teachings that the Buddha gave us and the realized teachers have passed down maybe we start to find that there are ways and means for allowing the heart and mind to settle to another level of stillness clarity where all this noise quietens down and we start to investigate in a feeling way you start to see the desire arises and ceases and we've got a choice We've actually got a choice whether to follow it and leave the base and follow out after our preferences or to stay and simply watch it. Not as a fixed position, like I'm never ever going to do anything or say anything or think anything ever again. That's just taking another fixed position. But by way of experiment, by way of investigation, studying the movement of preferences... Now, the Dhamma Chakra Sutta that we recite regularly on Saturday night is an elucidation of this dynamic. 
And the Buddha explains in great detail the mistake of being driven by our preferences, by always following liking and disliking, getting caught up in liking and disliking. There are these tendencies, there are these conditions of mind. They're not wrong. To say the mind should never have liking and disliking, it's like saying the eye should never see colours or the ear should never hear sounds. That's what the mind does. There are these mind movements, liking and disliking and knowing of liking and disliking. That's normal. There's nothing wrong with it. However, what is a problem is when we are caught up in the activity of liking and disliking. We are, in fact, enslaved to liking and disliking. But if we pull back and investigate, which is the encouragement in spiritual exercises, is to exercise the kind of careful, gentle, skillful containment of the heart's exuberance, get interested in the relationship we have with these conditioned liking and disliking activities. And still we come to, until we come to see directly for ourselves. We've got a choice. You don't have to follow, potentially, we don't have to follow these movements. And if we don't follow these movements, then we feel more responsible. We're no longer being driven. If we're driven by our preferences, we can be driven to all sorts of foolishness. Food that we want to eat that's not good for us. Well, the example I often give when you you've got a wound that's healing and it's itching and you really want to scratch it, you scratch it and it doesn't heal. Remember giving a talk once to group of people that about letting go of hatred or something along those lines and at the end of the talk somebody asked me how can I let go of, of this impulse when I really like it when I see somebody being foolish I find it really enjoyable to get angry at them to hate them that's actually understandable On a certain level, the unawakened personality does get a buzz, gets a hit of taking sides for and against. I dislike this person. And it can feel good on a certain level. It's embarrassing to admit it. But it's no different from it feels good to eat a whole load of cheesecake. It's not good for us necessarily, but it can feel good. To indulge in ill will until it turns into hatred can feel good. And get lost in the pleasure of listening to music can feel good. But if we get lost in pleasure, then we will get lost in pain. Get lost in feeling. We get lost in feeling. End of story. It's not there's anything wrong with enjoying pleasant feeling so long as we don't get lost in it. But that shift in relationship takes a subtlety of investigation. We're not just moralizing or theorizing or speculating about how we should or shouldn't be. It's a very superficial quality of investigation. We're letting go of the thinking and speculating 
and rather feeling our relationship with these conditioned preferences. Setting up these conditions against each other can give the sense of self a real hit. It can feel good. But that doesn't mean to say that it is good. Thankfully, we have these Dhamma teachings which don't just make us feel guilty because we are stuck at a very limited level of development of consciousness and it just quietly encourages us. Well, exercise of restraint and out of interest and investigate. Is this really productive? Does this really lead to harmony? Does this lead to sustainable contentment? Or does this in fact keep us in a state of perpetual discontentment? How many people do we know who are really contented, who can just sit there, not because their brain is numbed out with drugs or or they're asleep, just sit there, alert, conscious, alive, and really contented, joyously contented? How many people do we know like that? Well, that surely is a really sensible question, but how many people ask that question? And why don't they ask that question? Because caught up in the momentum of following this impulse to find contentment. It's a drug. It's a, it's a, even the Buddha took him you know, quite a few years before he stopped and turned around and looked directly at the cause of discontentment and saw through it and realized what he henceforth referred to as the middle way. As we've often spoken about before, the middle way is not a position of mediocrity. The middle way is a perspective of silent, spacious, selfless awareness that just knows when it's fully realized that Awareness has that capacity. Silent, spacious, selfless, just knowing awareness can see the mind movements, can see the inclinations to take sides, but is not driven by it. Can see liking, can see disliking. And if it's wise and compassionate to engage, well then that's what happens. But it's not coming out of compulsion. Recently I read a news article that was asking the question, why is this country, Britain, so deeply and painfully divided over the question of Brexit? Why can't these intelligent people cooperate and find a solution? Well not just the people, it's also the leaders who look at how do the leaders address this predicament? How do they go about problem solving? Adversarial politics, compulsively taking sides, committed to taking sides, for and against, winning and losing, or the law courts for that matter, or the leading universities, adversarial approach to problem solving is the norm in many areas in 
our society. And it doesn't have to be that way. And there are some countries where they operate on the basis of consensus politics. And if we look at them, they might find that there's a capacity of collaboration and, and possibility of actually listening to each other and cooperating that can bring about solutions. I mean, yes, life is very complex. And the more technology takes over, the more complex life becomes. But this paradigm of being for and against, fundamentally divided, winning and losing, is not producing beneficial results. It's not wrong, it's just not intelligent. It's just not productive. In fact, it's perfectly predictable. It's perfectly understandable. When awareness is not being cultivated, then as they're saying, uh, the unawakened personality, the deluded sense of self, gets a hit from winning and putting the other team down. It gets a buzz from it. But you don't have to look at it for very long. It's not particularly beautiful, and as we're seeing, it's not particularly productive. But it's prevalent. And I sometimes wonder how and why this adversarial mode has lasted so long. And what comes to my mind is that up until very recently, human beings were protected with conventional religious belief systems that relativized their sense of self. Up until relatively recently, people didn't take their ego, their sense of self, to be the sole source of authority. They projected that authority onto the Almighty. They had religious beliefs. The influence of religion protected people from self-inflation. All religions, more or less, in their own way, all the major religions, anyway, in their own way, offer that sort of protection. And the self is not taken too seriously. It's relativized. But for over the last hundred years, in the West anyway, the power and the influence of religion has waned significantly. Until now, a huge percentage of the population take this ego structure, this personality, this sense of self, to be the sole authority. They're worshipping it, promoting it. And large numbers, anyway, of the population are narcissists, you know, giving undue emphasis to their individual sense of self. And, and as we probably know from the original story of narcissists, the, the end of the story was not beautiful. Becoming infatuated with our self-image is a guaranteed recipe for an unhappy ending. So the conflict that is being experienced and the discord and the disharmony, seen from that perspective, is perfectly understandable, but doesn't stop it from being very sad. And, but if we do have a commitment to the cultivation of awareness, a selfless, spacious, silent, just-knowing awareness, if we have confidence in that, then we can investigate this too. And 
investigate our own relationship to preferences, to winning and losing. Our own confidence that the real source of blessings is not to be found in following the conditioned impulse to get my way. The impulse to get my way is just that. It is what it is. The ego structure, sense of personality, just is what it is. There's nothing wrong with it. The conventional functioning of the mind. But being caught up in seeking identity, seeking security, in that conditioned sense of self, that poisons the mind, disfigures consciousness, distorts awareness, and leads to suffering. All the struggle with identity politics these days is perfectly understandable. You see that so many people are now seeking identity in something that's inherently unstable and continually changing. In earlier times, people simply settled for an identity of their relationship with the divine, however they imagine that to be. But that solved it. And that's not there anymore now. So you add to the wane of the influence of religion and the protection that it used to afford the average personality from self-inflation, you add to that the, the force and the, and the potentization that comes from, from technology and you've got a really powerful mix. And, and that's what we have to deal with. But once again, it's not a disaster, it's the natural consequence of unawareness of not recognizing this is what happens if we seek security, seek identity in that which is inherently insecure. This is what happens if we followed our conditioned preferences. At what point did I learn to feel a preference for Wales beating France in the rugby on Friday? At what point in my life? It's just a conditioned preference. At what point did I learn to prefer Han and Power Porridge for breakfast over salty, chilly rice gruel they might have in a monastery in Burma? It's just a conditioned preference. These conditioned preferences are something that happens to human beings and if we really want to evolve, if we really want to discover and be nourished by sustainable blessings, then we need to reflect on and recognize the relativity of all external blessings. The benefit that can be gained from having encountered these external blessings is realized by taking the inner journey, by discovering, by learning to see for ourselves that this is the consequence of following preferences. It's not wrong. It just doesn't lead to well-being. And thank you very much this evening for your attention.